0: Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we're reading Mark 8, verses 27 to 33, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 to 33. The circumstances here recorded are of great importance. They took place during a journey and arose out of a conversation by the way. Happy are those journeys in which time is not wasted on trifles, but redeemed as far as possible for the consideration of serious things. Let us observe the variety of opinions about Christ which prevailed among the Jews. Some said that he was John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others one of the prophets. In short... Every kind of opinion appears to have been current except the one which was true. We may say the same thing on every side at the present day. Christ and his gospel are just as little understood in reality and are the subject of just as many different opinions as they were 1800 years ago. Many know the name of Christ, acknowledge him as one who came into the world to save sinners, and regularly worship in buildings set apart for his service. Few thoroughly realize that he is very God, the one mediator, the one high priest, the one only source of life and peace, their own shepherd and their own friend. Vague ideas about Christ are still very common. Intelligent, experimental acquaintance with Christ is still very rare. May we never rest until we can say of Christ, My beloved is mine, and I am his. Song of Solomon 2.16. This is saving knowledge. This is eternal life. Let us observe the good confession of faith which the Apostle Peter witnessed. He replied to our Lord's question, whom do you say that I am? You are the Christ. This was a noble answer when the circumstances under which it was made are duly considered. It was made when Jesus was poor in condition, without honor, majesty, wealth, or power. It was made when the heads of the Jewish nation, both in church and state, refused to receive Jesus as the Messiah. Yet even then, Simon Peter says, you are the Christ. His strong faith was not stumbled by our Lord's poverty and low estate. His confidence was not shaken by the opposition of scribes and Pharisees and the contempt of rulers and priests. None of these things moved Simon Peter. He believed that he, whom he followed, Jesus of Nazareth, was the promised Saviour, the true Prophet, greater than Moses, the long predicted Messiah. He declared it boldly and unhesitatingly, as the creed of himself and his few companions. "You are the Christ." There is much that we may profitably learn from Peter's conduct in this occasion. Erring and unstable as he sometimes was. The faith he exhibited in the passage now before us is well worthy of imitation. Such bold confessions as his are the truest evidence of living faith and are required in every age if men will prove themselves to be Christ's disciples. We too must be ready to confess Christ even as Peter did. We shall never find our master and his doctrine popular. We must be prepared to confess him with few on our side and many against us. But let us take courage and walk in Peter's steps, and we shall not fail of receiving Peter's reward. Jesus takes notice of those who confess him before men, and will one day confess them as his servants before an assembled world. Let us observe the full declaration which our Lord makes of his own coming death and resurrection. We read that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. The events here announced must have sounded strange to the disciples. To be told that their beloved Master, after all his mighty works, would soon be put to death, must have been heavy tidings and past their understanding. But the words which convey the announcement are scarcely less remarkable than the event. He must suffer. He must be killed. He must rise again. Why did our Lord say must? Did he mean that he was unable to escape suffering? That he must die by compulsion of a stronger power than his own? Impossible. This could not have been his meaning. Did he mean that he must die to give a great example to the world of self sacrifice and self denial, and that this and this alone made his death necessary? Once more, it may be replied, impossible. There is a far deeper meaning to the word must suffer and be killed. He meant that his death and passion were necessary in order to make atonement for man's sin. Without shedding of his blood, there could be no remission. Without the sacrifice of his body on the cross, there could be no satisfaction to God's holy law. He must suffer to make reconciliation for iniquity. He must die, because without his death as a propitiary offering, sinners could never have life. He must suffer, because without his vicarious sufferings, our sins could never be taken away. In a word, he must be delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Here is the center truth of the Bible let us never forget that. All other truths compared to this are of secondary importance. Whatever views we hold of religious truth, let us see that we have a firm grasp upon the atoning efficacy of Christ's death. Let the truth so often proclaimed by our Lord to his disciples, and so diligently taught by the disciples to the world, be the foundation truth in our Christianity. In life and in death, in health and in sickness, let us lean all our weight on this mighty fact, that though we have sinned, Christ has died for sinners, and that though we deserve nothing, Christ has suffered on the cross for us, and by that suffering purchased heaven for all who believe in him. Finally, Let us observe in this passage the strange mixture of grace and infirmity which may be found in the heart of a true Christian. We see that very Peter who had just witnessed so noble a confession, presuming to rebuke his master because he spoke of suffering and dying. We see him drawing down on himself the sharpest rebuke which ever fell from our Lord's lips during his earthly ministry. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. We have here a humbling proof that the best of saints is a poor, fallible creature. Here was ignorance in Simon Peter. He did not understand the necessity of our Lord's death and would have actually prevented his sacrifice on the cross. Here was self-conceit in Simon Peter. He thought he knew what was right and fitting for his master better than his master himself and actually undertook to show the Messiah a more excellent way. At last, but not least, Simon Peter did all with the best intentions. He meant well. His motives were pure. But zeal and earnestness are no excuse for error. A man may mean well and yet fall into tremendous mistakes. Let us learn humility from the facts here recorded. Let us beware of being puffed up with our own spiritual attainments or exalted by the praise of others. Let us never think that we know everything and are not likely to err. We see that it is but a little step from making a good confession to being a Satan in Christ's way. Let us pray daily. Hold me up. Keep me. Teach me. Let me not err. Lastly, Let us learn charity toward others from the facts here recorded. Let us not be in a hurry to cast off our brother as graceless because of errors and mistakes. Let us remember that his heart may be right in the sight of God, like Peter's, though, like Peter, he may for a time turn aside. Rather, let us call to mind Paul's advice and act upon it. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Galatians 6.1 That is the end of Raoul's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today. May the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we have just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, do we know about Christ, or do we know, love, and trust Christ? Can we say, my beloved is mine, and I am his? Second, are we ready to confess Christ even when it is not popular, when it might cost us? Third, is penal substitution that Jesus took our place on the cross the centerpiece of our theology, or is it something we are embarrassed to talk about? Do we lean on this truth as if our lives depended on it? And lastly, does the fact that Peter received such a strong rebuke from our Lord humble us, exposing that even if he could err so greatly, that we very well may as well? Do we think ourselves above his error? Do we ask our Lord to hold, keep, teach us, and help us not to err? Does this give us grace in dealing with the faults of others?